introduce you. Uh, Carolyn McGrail is coming to us today from UCSD. The title of her talk is Fine Mapping uh, Type 1 Diabetes Risk Variance in the MHC. Uh, as we spoke about sort of off camera, the MHC is notoriously challenging place to kind of figure things out and understand. So this is going to be really exciting to uh, hear about her work and her new project. She's a graduate student in the BMS program at UCSD. She graduated from Baruch College with a BA in biology and chemistry and received a BA from Boston University in economics. She has previous, previously researched gene environment interactions in the JAK-STAT pathway and, and computationally modeled organic compound reactions. And her current research focuses on how regulatory variants in the MAC locus influence type 1 diabetes, and examining heterogeneity of genetic risks within type 1 diabetes. After graduate school, she plans to examine ways to improve personalized medicine and autoimmune diabetes using genetic approaches. So this is, um, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Uh, and I can't wait to hear more. So welcome and thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you so much, Monica, for that introduction. Um, again, my name is Carolyn McGrail. I'm in Kyle Galton's lab at University of California, San Diego. And in our lab, we research diabetes using both single cell technologies and genetics. And today I'm going to be discussing one of our projects, fine mapping type 1 diabetes risk variants in the MHC locus. As a quick intro um, about type 1 diabetes, it is an autoimmune disease that affects over 2 million people in the United States, and its incidence has been increasing in recent decades uh, globally. And it's also characterized by this insulin producing beta cell destruction in the pancreas, where there can be some sort of potentially environmental exposure or trigger that can then induce this reaction and eventually become symptomatic T1D after about 90% of beta cells have been targeted and destroyed. On a cellular level, T1D occurs after this environmental exposure, it is thought, and that can trigger immune cells to become autoreactive. So you have antigen presenting cells such as B cells and dendritic cells that can present these beta cell autoantigens on their MHC receptor to then activate these autoreactive T cells that will in turn target and uh, destroy beta cells in the islets. B cells also can produce these autoantibodies against beta cells that are used as biomarkers of T1D and also can then continue to precipitate this immune reaction. And the major histocompatibility complex, the MHC, is very important in this. It is in general involved in adaptive and innate immunity. And it encodes these HLA proteins that are present on all nucleated cells with MHC1. And so that would signal the health of the cell or if it's virally or infected in some manner. And then MHC2 is present on all antigen presenting cells, such as B cells and dendritic cells, and they can present external antigens to these CD4 T cells. So this is the mechanism um, that is really well-known or, or well-established as one of the disease causal uh, agents within T1D and in general autoimmune diseases is this autoreactive CD4 T cell. And so while MHC class two is present on all antigen presenting cells, and that is the mechanism by which it typically will signal infection after some sort of uh, environmental exposure, it's also thought that it might have the ability to present on beta cells in the context of pro-inflammatory environment or also endothelial cells. So these are things that we wanted to look into as well when we were identifying, trying to identify these additional non-coding risk variants, whether we see if they are active in these other cell types. So over 60 loci have been associated to T1D across the genome, but 
50% of this genetic risk is estimated to fall within the MHC locus. So really the majority of the genetic risk for T1D falls in this very small four megabase pair region. And the majority of this risk is also for these class two genes that are inherited in haplotypes. Uh, class one also can contribute HLA-A and HLA-B are known to have some large risk factors, but in general, it's still mechanistically unknown how this, especially coding risk in the MHC, can affect the interaction of T1D relevant cell types. And so understanding maybe some non-coding additional risk in this region, we both can uh, identify additional genetic risk, but then potentially uncover some of this contribution for this cellular interaction that can lead to the pathogenesis of T1D. So in T1D, we have these very high risk um, haplotypes, DR3 and DR4, which I've abbreviated them to that for this um, purpose, are these different uh, allele combinations in three genes in the class two region. And these really do have in different combinations, such an increased risk for T1D. The heterozygous combination of having one copy of DR3, one copy of DR4 really drives this factor to great heights. And so it's thought that it can potentially create these transdimers that on the surface of the cell will change the pocket conformation. So potentially be more amenable to presenting autoreactive um, proteins so that this will then trigger this autoreactive immune response but by the, the CD4 T cells. And so while about 90% of people with T1D have the DR3 and or DR4 haplotype, MHC risk inheritance in, for these particular haplotypes does not necessitate disease manifestation. So this is actually relatively common. DR3 is relatively common in the general population. So there might be some additional non-coding risk that can modify potentially these high risk uh, alleles or haplotypes, or then even some maybe lower risk or non-risk um, genes that can then increase or decrease relative risk for disease in this locus. Since this does have such a heavy genetic component and genetic risk for T1D, um, the entire region and how it operates is just not really well understood. So there could be non-coding variants modifying what is known about the risk. And in general, as we were discussing earlier off camera, identifying additional risk in the MHC has been relatively difficult due to a few factors. Um, the first one is that there is a very high linkage disequilibrium. So it's difficult to parse through what is a true causal variant. And then additionally, class one and class two genes have a very high degree of polymorphism. So they have a very large number of different alleles for each gene and identifying which one is um, potentially a true causal allele has also been difficult to parse through since due to linkage as well. So in general, a lot of these polygenic disorders have um, that have had GWAS studies performed, the majority of these SNPs that uh, are identified and associated to that particular disease are non-coding SNPs in the greater genome-wide area. And so we would like to be able to see if we can identify some non-coding risk in this region, because that would also give us the opportunity to then uncover some potentially unknown biology about T1D it's not as easy to understand with coding risk because we can identify potentially which cell types are involved using genomic annotations and then also start to understand how regulatory action is occurring within these cell types and how that contributes to disease. So for this particular project, we had two main goals. 
The first is to determine and characterize additional genetic risk, both any sort of coding or novel non-coding risk, and then calculate additional heritability due to this risk. And then with any sort of interesting non-coding credible sets or variants, we wanted to then examine the regulatory effects of these non-coding MHC variants. So identify which cell types are involved, and we can do that using genomic annotations, and then also how this genes, how these genes are affected, and we can use some in vitro validations to also um, confirm these. So for this project, um, it's been difficult to then resolve the signal since there are such large effects, large signals in this region with regards to uh, genomic assays and genomic studies. And so we can use the specialized HLA reference panel that was developed using a European uh, cohort of about 55 or 6,000 samples. And it contains these four and two digit HLA alleles, different amino acids and their um, their codons and, and the different combinations at each location, and then SNPs and indels. And so what we have are- well, Carolyn, just for, um, just to um, clarify one thing, uh, what was that European cohort? Sorry. This is, um, so this was the T1DGC reference panel. Got it. And so it was made using mainly European samples. So white Caucasian samples. And mm -hmm. that is also what we have um, performed these assays in because uh, it has been shown that in different uh, ethnic backgrounds, different um, with different ancestries that your HLA contribution for genetic risk for T1D is can be very different. So in order to really start this project and, and then expand further, starting with what is known and um, you know where we have the most information, which is these European samples, and then understanding then if this is what's happening there, then there's different risk in people of um, East Asian descent and then also African-American. So this really, I don't think is necessarily possible to do in a uh, fixed kind of analysis going outside into different ancestries because the HLA types are, um, the contribution for risk and disease is very different as yeah. we see kind of using genetic risk scores to really identify and characterize risk um, in different projects with people of different ancestry. Right. So this was a European um, reference panel because the 10,000 cases and 20,000 control samples we used were of UK and also like American cohorts, but then of European ancestry. Yeah. So, okay, great. Um, Thank you very yeah. much for clarifying. So for this imputation, um, just to kind of briefly describe what happens is that there's a reference panel of this uh, about 55 or 6,000 uh, Europeans who have their HLA types, and then also it's it's known what is linked to these HLA types. And so for our samples, we can see what also matches up with these particular SNPs to best guess then what their HLA type is. And so with this, we can then have a lot of this additional signal or additional information in this region to then better condition and resolve signal in the region to identify additional risk, which um, without using these HLA types, which do carry the greatest risk, was difficult to resolve signal in the region. So for our first analysis, we really wanted to perform a, a forward stepwise association analysis. And so what we did was perform a first bias corrected logistic regression. And this approach applies an additive effect of each variant as it examines the frequencies between both cases and controls to see if this is likely to be associated or not. And then we can condition 
on what is the largest signal or the strongest signal in that region. And we use the MHC locus as just an entire locus due to the high linkage disequilibrium across it. And so we then can condition until no signal remains in the region. And then Bayesian fine map each of these signals to create causal, pre uh, causal sets, credible sets, looking at what is linked to each signal, and then calculating the causal probability based on the effect size and standard error of each variant, and then creating these credible sets that are likely to contain the causal variant for each signal. We also then wanted to use this um, newer program called SUSY, which is the sum of, of single effects. And it's a iterative Bayesian stepwise selection process. So similar, but instead of selecting a single variable at each step, this process looks at many different combinations at each step to then optimize a best fit for a regression model. So one of the major differences is um, we can use either the summary statistics, which uh, when working with all of the variants in the MHC does not work as well because this is optimal uh, optimized when uh, the variants are um, highly correlated, but sparse effects, which is not the MHC. We, there's many effects and there's a lot of linkage. So um, when we're trying to run this just without any sort of preconditioning, this this does not work as well in, in SUSY, but it is still a good um, check to see if we're, we're obtaining some of these similar main results. Now, when we also use um, the genotype data from what we imputed, it actually performs better, although the difference is, is that's a linear regression. So there's not, it's not a perfect uh, correlation between the two, but we wanted to try to optimize variants that were found in both of these in order for further validation. And once we have these uh, non-coding credible sets, we can then genomically annotate them looking at both accessible chromatin, so which cell types are, is there accessible chromatin for these variants, um, looking at transcription factor binding, so preferential transcription factor binding, and then also looking at QTLs to see, is there a change in gene expression based on the alleles at a particular variant, or do they have also a chromatin accessible um, QTL where the accessibility of chromatin changes at that particular variant? And so we would then um, optimize or, or preferentially choose the credible sets that have variants that are likely causal within that credible set falling within um, accessible chromatin, either in immune cells or beta cells, and also with QTLs or some sort of transcription factor, uh, preferential transcription factor motifs. While we have performed um, stepwise regressions and the SUSY regressions on all of the data, and we identify about 30 or so independent signals, what we wanted to really um, work on is, is trying to clarify whether we can find true non-coding signals. And to this end, we then also performed a preconditioned conditional analysis, which is a mouthful. But in, in general, what we did was identify through literature all known HLA-associated variants. So this should also contain and resolve the known amino acid changes as a result of having these particular HLA alleles. And so those would be typically linked in these conditional analysis and removed at that signal when, when these particular HLA alleles would be removed. And so we found um, there's about 51 or so documented in literature, and we can pull out about 34 from our analysis. Six were poorly imputed, so we could not condition on those. And then 11 of the 51 known HLA-associated variants 
have a very small minor allele frequency and we were only working with anything greater than 1%. So we were able to pull out a lot of these various HLA alleles prior to actually running a stepwise forward regression and then also conditioning on the summary statistics for Susie. And we also include um, sex in the first four PCs, ancestral PCs, to adjust for differences in ancestry or gender. And with this, we found about 13 different independent signals, um, the first of which is the well-known HLA-B39, but we were only conditioning on four-digit alleles, and 3906, which is the known associated variant, is um, not present in one of the groups we use, so we, we could not pull this out. But... It makes sense that that was the first signal. It's a very known high-risk signal in this region. But what we do find are these five non-coding credible sets, some of which also were found without this preconditional analysis. But um, it's good to see that they're also showing up when we remove all known HLA-associated variants so that these could not be linked to those particular variants since we removed their signal already. And so this is what the landscape looks like in the MHC for this particular preconditional analysis, where different colors are um, identifying various, the different 13 credible sets. And so we have our non-coding credible sets. Condition one is present in this HLA-DPB region. And then condition two is a single variant around HLA-A. Condition five is the one that we're um, interested in and going to investigate first because it's present in DRA, so HLA-DRA, and which is not typically the polymorphic um, gene within T1D, it's the DPBs and DQs, but it does seem to have um, interesting effects and is, and is present in the untranslated region, five prime untranslated region of HLA-DRA. And so we have condition seven, which seemed to also be in HLA-A, and our last non-coding credible set, which was in DMA. So these were the- Carolyn, can, um, yeah. can you comment a little bit on condition two? Is that um, is that letting up over HLA-G? So I think um, when looking at also linkage, um, it might, might fall in this region, but I think a lot of these variants typically modify or are linked to HLA-A mm -hmm. in that region. Yeah. So it actually seems to be more so potentially linked um, to an HLA-A, I would say. Okay. But um, so, so the thing with like the preconditional analysis as well is that some of these variants were either poorly imputed or um, did not necessarily make the cutoff for previous GWAS studies as far as associated. I, I would think this is actually potentially linked to an HLA-A 101, which... Um, I, I, I'm not sure how heavily associated with T1D that is, but it seemed to be pretty linked to that particular HLA variant. So uh, it's it's still kind of parsing through afterwards. Typically, when you have credible sets, you say that is the, the variant should be contained. But since there is so much linkage, I still was looking at what is linked in the region after creating the credible sets because Got it. signals may just not be capturing all the information. And we still don't have all the information in this region with even the imputed data. Okay. that's, um, that's And then condition good. one is interesting because this was actually identified previously by um, another group as an independent uh, conditional signal. So this is the only one that was actually previously identified as a fine map signal. Um, but some of these have been, have been also described in the context of T1D. 
condition five, for example, has also been it described in the context of T1D as far as it was a more gene regulatory network um, study where they combined a bunch of different genomic and genetic assays and then pulled out actually the lead variant in this credible set, RS14004, as um, likely describing potentially B-cell involvement, which is pretty much also what we would see, I think, as well here. And so this is the credible set for condition five, where there were about 12 variants found in this credible set and um, in ver very high linkage to each other. And these are the top four in the credible set. But RS14004 was definitely of most interest as it was, it had the highest causal probability. So almost 90% likely to be the causal SNP in that credible set and is also present right in the promoter of HLA-A, DRA. So we looked at different ATAC uh, profiles of immune cells. This is from Calderon's paper. And we saw that for antigen presenting cells, definitely um, present in some very open accessible chromatin in this region. And in addition to that, we saw that there was also this preferential transcription factor binding for various E2F um, proteins, which are involved in B cell proliferation. So this is, um, we're just at the step where we're starting to get into the wet lab now to validate the, this particular variant in a B cell um, and to see if it does affect um, either what kind of what kind of genes in the region does it affect because it is in the promoter of HLA-A DRA, but it's also um, has been described as EQTLs for whole blood in the well-known high-risk uh, DRB and DQA and B uh, genes in MHC class two. So this is definitely um, one of the variants of interest that we would like to move forward with. And since it was also identified, I think just using any sort of association, um, this does seem to be likely a true causal non-coding credible set. And so overall, we do find these 13 independent signals using this preconditional analysis and five of which appear to be non-coding. And um, most of these also falling within ATAC peaks for antigen presenting cells. So now we plan to functionally validate these and then also calculate any sort of additional heritability from the novel risk variants. And I'd like to thank you all for listening today and would be happy to take your questions. Thank you. That was excellent. Um, yeah, well, let's open it up to questions. I, um, I think you guys are uh, really tapping into some you know, fabulous work there. I, I love that you brought such a different um, background to this project as well, your training and economics and everything else. I think it brings something uh, fresh to looking at um, these data. And um, for the next steps, uh, you know, when you are now talking about bringing it into lab, um, what are you what are you considering? We are performing some reporter assays now, starting with likely luciferase assay to look at preferential transcription factor binding and whether there are differences in the allele um, at these particular variants. But and then also performing an EMSA to look at uh, protein binding and whether there are differences at this particular allele for these variants of interest for protein binding. Um, we do, we are trying to set up some CRISPR assays within the lab as well. So that's potentially in the works for down the road, but starting with some, some reporter assays to then validate these variants of interest. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So, and then are the, um, in terms of the, uh, 
um, you know, the next stages. Have you guys communicated any of these results with Neil McKennett? He, he was involved with our D challenge last year and created a consensus looking at PBMCs and really found some interesting sort of like genes that were up and down regulated in context of PBMC. And I wondered if your data might even intersect with his in any way. Yeah, that would definitely be interesting to look at. I know a lot of times, sometimes the MHC is not assayed or really examined thoroughly. So yeah. um, typically I, and especially in our lab, we have so much genomic data that we generate that it's been really interesting to then look through and see, do these variants also have activity in all these different genomic assays? And in particular, I think the immune cells are most likely relevant. I, we came into this trying to see if we could find beta cell specific or anything to validate that um, idea or that path. But what we're seeing is a lot of uh, immune cells activity and then also likely within the antigen presenting cell realm. So kind of potentially, hopefully bringing more context to what antigen presenting cells bring to the table, potentially at the beginning or during T1D. Yeah, during the prodrome is always of interest, yeah. right? That if we can really sort of delineate those steps, what's happening, it would be, um, you know, really advantageous as we kind of develop strategies to prolong remission or, you know, you know ultimately prevent uh, T1D from even happening. Um, okay, I guess the one last thing I would say is how do you envision these data that you guys are mining um, intersecting with the sort of the TCR, BCR um, data sets that are emerging? Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I, I know that these are still likely containing different information. Um, what interacts from what I understand, what interacts on the TCR side is not necessarily what would interact on the MHC side. And so this might still contain different information, but it would be interesting to see um, what's happening elsewhere, otherwise in B cells, T cells. Um, but as, as of right now, don't have too many plans going forward, uh, looking into their activity. I think I think this would likely contain potentially different information than what we would find looking at the various changes in the T cell receptor. Um, so we would have to, I think, parse through still some more of the MHC before moving anywhere else there. Yeah. I mean, this is what you're looking at is sort of like what sets the stage yeah. for yeah, I think things to go wrong. And then some, I think some of those other, the TCR, BCR data are looking at like, you know, how the the TCR and BCR um, change over time as a result of this uh, innate sort of fragility, I guess, right? Yeah, and I do think a lot of this is modifications potentially that predispose B cells to then becoming prol proliferating or different aspects of being more receptive or to inflammatory environments within, especially the class three genes that we see. They seem to be potentially more involved in inflammatory aspects. So I think this might have some more information with regards to potentially more of the beginning, less so all of these, um, these seem to be potentially more static, very uh, stationary changes that we're seeing versus I think TCR, BCR, those are, they can change and evolve over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good answer. Um, okay, well, that's great. I hope you have a great rest of the day. I look forward to seeing what um, comes out of the Galton Lab next. I mean, it's really, you, you guys are really a powerhouse down there and appreciate all you're doing. 
great. Thank you so much, Monica. Have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.